It's good to see all of you today. Uh, I want to invite you to turn to the 22nd Psalm. Um, if you have a Bible with you or use the Pew Bible, um, just approximately in the middle, maybe a little bit in front of the middle, you'll find the thick book of Psalms. And this is the 22nd Psalm. Um, fasten your seat belts. We've got 31 verses to read today. Uh, so I'll only have about uh, five minutes uh, to, to discuss this text by the time we've read it. But, uh, but we'll see how that works out. Um, but uh, fasten your seatbelts as well, because just as a kind of a, a prelude to this, this is probably some of the darkest language uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, and, and we need to hear it um, as, as it exists. Psalm 22, beginning with verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you, I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All, your off, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who see him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him uh, who eat and worship before him shall bow. Be, uh, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. 
all the prosperous of the earth eat, earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as, as we, we confront the honesty of these words, the range of experience and feelings that they evoke for us, we pray that you would teach us in this text who we are and who you are and what that means for us in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to make an assertion that I think is important, and that is that complaining is a basic human need. Now, we've, we've been here about a year, and some of you have got to know me, and you're thinking, it doesn't surprise me that you would say that at all. So I want to illustrate this with uh, um, a, an anecdote about one of the kindest, most thoughtful, considerate, sensitive people I know, namely my wife, who completely balances me in this regard. Uh, a number of years ago, our son was a freshman in college, and he was, he was going to a place far from where we lived, and so we flew um, that, that fall to go to the family weekend, you know, the colleges generally have for, for, for parents and families to visit, and we were on a, on a regional jet, um, and it was a beautiful fall day, uh, and just, just completely clear, and we realized as we got to our destination airport that we had been circling for 15 or 20 minutes, and it looked forward to the um, the front of the, the, the cabin and saw the flight attendant, you know, like this, you know, with her hand over her mouth talking to the, to the, uh, uh, the flight deck about what was going on. And I thought she looked a little concerned and, and so forth. Well, you got to understand, Tammy does not like to fly. Uh, and so she's kind of, you know, what's going on here? And, you know, you know, and so forth. And so finally, the flight attendant comes on and says, okay, I've been talking to, to the captain, and he's been in touch with um, the ground crew back uh, at, our, at our departure airport because our flaps aren't working. And, um, and so, uh, you know, they, they, we wondered if they had a fix, and they don't. So we're going to be going down kind of fast. And... Um, if you, if, you, if you look on either side, you're probably going to see some emergency vehicles with the flashing lights going and so forth. And, but don't be alarmed. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> well, at this point, just like, like this, right? Okay. It was, our son was, was a junior in college before the marks went away on my arm. You know, it was, it was like that. So anyway, we come down and it was fast and it was fast. It was the fastest thing I've experienced in a while. Uh, but, you know, obviously we're here and everyone's fine. Uh, and as we're getting off the plane, Tammy is calling someone. And I said, who are you calling? And she named a friend of ours who is an aeronautical engineer working for GE Engines in Cincinnati. She said, he's the only person I know I can complain to right now about this. <laughs> okay? So sometimes you just gotta complain, even if you're, even if you're Tammy. Now, let's acknowledge sometimes complaint is more a matter of blame casting, and sometimes that can be a very harmful thing that comes out of a selfish motivation and a judgmental stance. But, you know, we're reading a text today which is about complaining to God. Now, for a lot of us, that seems disrespectful. 
I mean, he's God. I shouldn't complain to him, right? I mean, everything's perfect with God. I shouldn't complain. But a remarkable fact is that the Bible is full of complaining to God. Of the 150 psalms, 30-ish of them are psalms of complaint. One of the reasons I like being a Christian is you get to tell God what you're thinking well, because he already knows. And if that's a complaint, you're allowed to offer it. The Psalms in, and the Bible in general are brutally honest about human suffering, the seeming unfairness of life, the devastating impact on our minds and hearts of our disappointments and suffering, and of our deep need to complain about it. And what this Psalm, among other things, is showing us is that God can handle our complaints because God is utterly faithful to his suffering people. So this is what I want us to consider today. We're going to look closely at this psalm to see what it tells us about our suffering and what it tells us about God. So what does it tell us about our suffering? Well, first of all, it tells us that our suffering comes from all directions. One of the interesting things about reading the psalms is you realize there was probably some specific set of circumstances that gave rise to each of them. But those circumstances lie far in the background because, you know, the, the whole idea of having a song that other people sing is that we can all join in and identify that. Okay, I am, as you would probably guess, not a Swifty. Uh, I feel totally left out in this cultural moment by, by not being a part of the Taylor Swift phenomenon. And I speak of complete ignorance about this. I, I have the impression that her songs are about her own experiences, which seem to be the experience of everyone under the age of about 38 in the United States. Uh, at least as, as she phrases that, there's something that, that lots of folks just deeply identify with that. Well, that's the nature of, of a, a good song, in general, I tend to identify more with, I don't know, Jerome Kern and that kind of thing. But, but this, is, this is true of the Psalms as well. And so as we read this, we realize, you know, there's probably something that's specific that, that gives rise to this, but I, there's just so many points that I can see connecting to so many different things. This is, this is true not just of the Psalms, but of the way that the Bible deals with our suffering in general. If we were to choose an, an example from the Bible, the, the archetype, as it were, of suffering, we might go, go to Job. As we think of the story of Job, Job just had everything. He, the loss of possessions, the grief uh, of, of, at the death of his children, physical pain, excruciating pain from, from chronic disease, conflict with his wife, conflict with his friends, a feeling of, of being judged and rejected by those around him. He had that, that, that full range of, of experience. And as we read this text, we identify with that as well irrespective of our specific circumstances, there's probably something here that we identify with. Well, out of that range, though, I think this psalm tells us something else that's true about our suffering. Of all the ways that we suffer, being rejected and forsaken by other people is probably the worst. The, the kind of the the peak of, of the expression of complaint in the psalm comes in verses 6 and 8 and then in verses 14 to 18. And as we read this, we see there, there's a depiction here of, of physical danger, of, of pain and physical suffering, but most of the description and the most bitter description comes out of the experience of the merciless scorn of other people. 
The, you know, the, the way in which being rejected by, by other people is, is so difficult and, and, and hard for us to experience. I thought of this a number of years ago when I, I happened across a PBS documentary about um, an infamous episode in our nation's history that isn't really that far from here, a lynching that took place in Marion, Indiana in 1930. Now this was, you know, in the, in the very shameful and, and terrible history of, of lynching in this country. The Marion example was especially notorious, first of all, because it happened so much farther north than we might expect, but of course, uh, unfortunately, racism doesn't know, doesn't know borders. Uh, but also because it was, it was photographed and, and the pictures just were, were, uh, were circulated widely. Well, there were two men who were lynched on that occasion, but unusually, there was a third who was about to be lynched, and then he was not. His name was James Cameron. Well, Cameron went on to, to found a, a museum uh, about the, the experience of, of racial violence uh, in the city of, of Milwaukee. Uh, but uh, he was the subject of a documentary on Wisconsin uh, public broadcasting in, um, in the early 2000s. And this is, this is an excerpt of his description of his ex experience. He was, he was in the jail there in Marion, and they said, and then they began to chant for me like a football player. We want Cameron. We want Cameron. We want Cameron. And I could feel, my, my body feel like it was encased in an ice suit. I was just cold all over. To think they wanted me that bad. People I'd thought were my friends. People whose lawn I'd mowed and whose cars I'd washed and whose errands I'd run for them and whose shoes I'd shined. People I knew in the mob. Neighbors. Here were ten to 15,000 people out there screaming for my blood. And then they came back to get me. I didn't even have time to pray. The mob turned on me and began to close in on me. I looked into the faces of the people as they were beating me there, and I was pleading for help, and nobody offered me help. Once or twice I thought I saw a kind Christian face, face someone who was civilized in the press near me. To each of these I cried out for some kind of help, while at the same time I gave others a pitiful look, mutely imploring mercy, but nothing happened. The mob mauled me all the way to the courthouse lawn. Not once did they stop pounding me. Then in a memoir he wrote, Cameron wrote this. I remembered what my mother had told us children about sinners facing death, about the thief on the cross. She told us the Lord will forgive and have mercy on the souls of, of sinners uh, if they will only call on him. I knew I had nothing to lose, everything to gain. I couldn't be any worse off than I was at that moment. Lord, I mumbled through puffed lips, forgive me my sin, have mercy on me. I stopped thinking then. In my own mind and body and soul, I was already dead. And I was glad to be leaving a world filled with so many false and deceitful people. Now, I can't imagine the, the physical suffering that Cameron went through. But what he emphasized in the telling of the story was that, that sense of alienation and rejection that, that came out of that experience. As human beings, we are so deeply dependent on and connected to one another that, that to be rejected in that way perhaps cuts the most deeply. Well, another 
insight that we have about our suffering from this psalm is that suffering puts us on what I will call a paradoxical roller coaster. You know, as much of the psalm goes on, the focus alternates between com- the complaining and lamenting the situation and the declaration of confidence in God. Did you notice that? It goes back and forth and back and forth. In the worst of circumstances, we can still experience joy and peace. And in the best of circumstances, we can still experience fear and pain. Faith is not only expressed in the joy and peace. This is very important for us to remember. When we are honest about the fear and pain that we are experiencing, when we tell God about it, tell God what he already knows, even if we tell him with some attitude, we are expressing faith. We are doing what God invites us to do. You know, uh, and, and I want to just say again how deeply we appreciate all the expressions of, of love and support um, that, that uh, you have given uh, to, to Tammy and me and our family uh, as, as we've gone through uh, the loss of our daughter-in-law. Um, and one of those expressions is just, you know, people routinely saying to us, how are you doing? Uh, and, you know, Tammy and I have joked, we just need to print out a little card to give out. And I say that not because we don't want you to ask and we don't want to answer, uh, but, uh, but it, it is just kind of the, 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 the frequent experience. Um, and, you know, I, I think a part of the answer is we're on the roller coaster. You know, there's a lot of life that is just as good as it ever is, and you experience all of that. But then there's another thing. Uh, that, that reminds you of something else. This is the nature of our experience. And that experience is, a, for the people of God, a part of the experience of faith. Well, let's make a fourth observation about our suffering from, from this, this psalm. That suffering feels like death. Suffering feels like death. Verses 12 to 18 describe a person surrounded by violent enemies in a situation very much like James Cameron's there in Marion in, in, in 1930. Uh, they are preparing for the victim's demise. This is why they're gambling for the victim's clothing. Um, as the psalmist says, you lay me in the dust of death. There's an echo there of, of the, the image of, of dust as that which God creates human beings from in Genesis, and that to which we return in death. To you lay me in the dust of death is to say, I am, I am preparing to die. I am about to die. Regardless of the kind of suffering we're talking about, material deprivation, physical pain, economic loss, social rejection, in the extreme, any of those experiences leads to death. It leads to our ultimate demise. And, they all, and so any of these experiences remind us of our mortality, and so they re- provoke in us the reaction that we naturally have as part of our natural constitution to avoid dying and to stay alive. Suffering feels like death because that's the way we are wired. That's who we are as frail, mortal human beings. So I say this so that we won't read the psalm and say, well, this is way more than I'm going through right now. I mean, I'm not dying. I'm not surrounded by enemies. I've got some people who've got issues with me. You know, things aren't great right now, but, but this, is, this isn't that bad. Let that 
let that language be what it is and identify with it. Understand that this psalm is about each of us, irrespective of the specific circumstances that we are facing. This is our nature as human beings. This story is your story too. God is inviting you into it. Well, that's us, that's our situation. What does this psalm tell us about God? Well, again, a few observations. One is that God receives our honest complaints with compassion. This psalm is not in the Bible as an example of what not to do. You know, it doesn't come with the heading, David messed up this time, don't let this happen to you. No, that we are being invited to enter into this psalm. As we said before, it's one of about 30 psalms that, that offer complaint or lament or, or call on God to act against those who are our enemies. And I'll just say, if this language in the Bible isn't quite strong enough for you, let me give you another example from Jeremiah uh, chapter 20, beginning with verse 7. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. I remember not maybe the first time I read that, but the first time I paid attention to it, and I thought, good grief, can you talk to God this way? God, you lied to me? I guess so. He let it in the Bible. There it is. Now, I mean, Jeremiah's having the same experience as the psalmist. In verse 13, he says, Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. So it sounds like he's doing better, but then in the next verse, verse 14, he says, Cursed be the day which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. This guy is on the roller coaster. And this is what the Bible invites us to share. You tell God exactly what you're thinking. He already knows, and he wants you to trust him to tell him. He gets it. Now, in that, we understand, too, that God does not abandon his people, even when it feels that he has. The feeling of abandonment is real. This psalm speaks with utter sincerity in every line. This isn't a passive-aggressive move on the part of the psalmist to say, God, you abandoned me. So God will say, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. You know, it's not that kind of thing at all. It's the real experience that the person is having. But let's understand the larger context. The God of the Bible is relentless and persistent in his pursuit and protection of his people. God abandons zero people. It, God is gracious he is merciful. He is on your side. You don't know me. You're right. I don't. I know that God is on your side. This is what he assures us of. Now, we might ask ourselves, was Jesus abandoned on the cross? Because, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, didn't he use the words of the psalm uh, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, let's not forget. He also says on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We're going to have to work that puzzle out. Feelings of abandonment and the reality of God's faithfulness exist side by side in the experience of God's people. Another way to put it is that Easter answers Good Friday. Another observation about God in this, that God consistently and reliably delivers his people, though not necessarily as they want or expect. 
Now, this is, this is just the fabric of Scripture in general. We could, we could go through um, a list. In fact, we will. We'll go through a list of famous people in the Bible and how this is true of them. Abraham experiences God's promises being fit, fulfilled over a period of time and by a means that he cannot imagine. I'm going to give you a son and make you a great nation and give you the land, and that, boy, does that happen different, differently than he expects. Israel is taken out of Egypt in the Exodus by a means that no one could have anticipated or expected that was going on around them and they barely could acknowledge, let alone put their faith in it, in the moment. David, as a young man, was delivered from King Saul and as an older man was delivered from his son Absalom, even though he was overwhelmed by the greater forces that they had, delivered not by his own cleverness, but by the hand of God. How about the story of Ruth with Naomi? Ruth, who is a widow uh, with her widowed mother-in-law from another nation who leaves her people and goes with her mother-in-law without any expectation of, of any support whatsoever and is delivered by a means that she could not have anticipated. Or another of the, of the mothers of the faith, Esther, who had risen to a place of influence through something which the book of Esther doesn't exactly suggest is, is the kind of thing that, a, that a, a, a good Jewish girl ought to be doing, getting herself married to the, the, the pagan king as part of his, as part of his harem. But in, in that position, she is used by God to deliver her people from a mortal threat. None of these things are things that anyone would have expected. All of them are the means by which God did his faithful thing. And this is true for us as well. Now, some of us can testify to this. We can say, over time, this was something that I was experiencing. This was a situation that I was in, and I have been delivered from this, not in the way that I expected, not necessarily in the way that I prayed for, but God has blessed me. God has been faithful to me. God has delivered me. Probably in more instances, we would say, I'm in a situation, and I don't know whether I'm being delivered or not, and I'm holding on by my fingernails to my faith, to belief, to the belief that God is with me, that God is going to deliver me, because that's just the kind of God that he is. But let's, let's kind of shift our thinking here a little bit, because there's another element of the larger context of the psalm that I want us to consider. Now, it is not simply true that God delivers us from our suffering, but it is also true that God is delivering his world through the suffering of his people, through the suffering of his people. The big promise that God makes to us as his people is not simply that he's going to take care of us in danger and deliver us from death to life. You know, that, that each of us, no matter what we face, uh, when, we, when we come to the point of death, that God delivers us from, from, from death to life. That's, that's a vital and important part of our faith as Christians, but that's not the whole story. God is not just saving us individually. He's taking back his world, isn't he? Jesus comes to establish his kingdom. And the promise we look forward to is at the return of Jesus, the resurrection of all of, of God's people and our living in the new heavens and new earth in, in fellowship forever uh, under those circumstances. But let's understand that in that, 
comes the promise as well that as we look forward to that and go through the experiences of rejection and suffering that we go through, just like the people of God of old, God is bringing his blessing to the world. He is delivering the world through his people who go through these things. Now, we're not going to even attempt to enumerate exactly how that happens. We're simply going to name that as the perspective that the gospel story gives to us, that the story of the Bible gives to us. He promises this to the very people he delivers in suffering. Abraham, Israel in Egypt, David. These are, these are the folk who are beginning to see the working out of God's promise in their lives. And we can understand from our perspective why is this is the case. All those promises and people in the Bible lead to a kind of a, a crossroads, an intersecting point, a place where everything comes together, and that is in Jesus. Be, uh, our suffering brings deliverance to the world in God's plan because in Christ, God has entered into the fullness of our suffering. Now, it's hard to read Psalm 22 as a Christian and not think about Jesus. You're supposed to. You're supposed to because the gospel writers have deliberately used this psalm as kind of the background music in their telling of, of the story of, of Jesus' death. I, I want you to imagine for a minute, imagine just, just, just film without any sound depicting the death of Jesus. And then imagine how that film would be different depending on the, the music that you put with it. Imagine Amazing Grace as, as the music underneath that, okay? Or for people of a, a certain age, by contrast, imagine it's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine, okay? Now, how different are the interpretations there? You, you notice how, how filmmakers are telling us how to feel about what we see by the music that they play, how to interpret it, how to understand that. Well, you know, you can't add a score to, to the Bible, exactly, at least not as it was being written. It didn't come with a soundtrack, unfortunately. But what the writers were able to do was use older familiar texts in their telling of new things as a way of laying that, that kind of interpretation onto it. And so Psalm 22 is like the score of the film that the gospel writers are telling us. Wherever they can, they draw details from the psalm so that we hear echoes of the psalm in the story of the death of Jesus. Why is that? To help us understand that Jesus died as the climax of all of the suffering of the faithful people of God who had come before. That in this we see, we see all of that coming to its climax, that we can say as people who had sung this psalm all our lives as a way of identifying ourselves as, as God's faithful people in suffering, that now Jesus has entered into that fully, that Jesus suffers with us. And then what does, what does the, the, the subsequent revelation in the New Testament do for us in this regard? Well, an example is in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up, Paul says, what is lacking 
in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, this is another text you read and think, wait, something's lacking in the sufferings of Jesus? What does Paul mean by that? Well, what he means is that as followers of Jesus, whom Jesus invites to take up our crosses, the instrument of death, and follow him, that God's redemptive saving purpose is continuing to be worked out in our own difficulties, in our own suffering. That this is where our witness, our testimony, our impact of the world is ironically enough greatest because this is how God works. God always works in the weak, the lowly, the insignificant, the suffering, and who's central to that? Jesus, the Lord whom we follow. Now, this is so vitally important to us. In ways that are unknown to us, even as we look in the rearview mirror and and try to evaluate, God is using the lowly suffering service of his people to reclaim his world and to make rebellious humans his people again. As Jesus suffered like the people of God before him, so you and I suffer like Jesus for the same purpose, even if he alone dies for the sins of the world. We are united in this. So what can we say about this? First, go ahead and complain. Go ahead and complain. You might as well. You know, God, I've got something to tell you that you probably don't know. Well, no, actually I do, but tell me anyway. That's that's what he's saying to us. The complaints of the faithful are a vital part of the prayers of the faithful. This is is how we unburden ourselves to God. We need to let it out, not because letting it out is therapeutic, though it probably is, but because God knows and God listens and God thoroughly understands. Why does he understand? Because God the Son has suffered with us. He knows everything about what it is to suffer physically. He knows everything it is to be betrayed to be let down by those who love you, to be surrounded by enemies, to be rejected, to be in despair. He knows all of that. And God answers our suffering in ways that we don't expect or necessarily even notice. And yet somehow in what we complain about, he is taking the world back. He is making it his. He is establishing and extending his reign over the world, or the reign that will be completed at the return of Christ, the Christ whose death is memorialized in that vision of Revelation. The lamb who was slain is the lion of Judah. We never forget, but we see the God's, God's victory in the midst of that story. The Christ who reigns in heaven now and who returns to fulfill God's promise to the fullest is the Christ who has suffered just as we do. He understands. He is with us all the way. He has shown us the way. Cross and all, he is the way. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are indeed weak, often confused, often feeling alone, uncertain, puzzled, frustrated, angry, discouraged. But you know all that, and we know you understand every bit of it. And we are glad that you are with us, that you have demonstrated your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise that nothing can separate us from your love. 
and we commit ourselves to your care. In the name of Jesus, amen.